I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to look at the very end of the letter from Peter. And it's going to be, frankly for me, like saying goodbye to an old friend. I have really enjoyed it. It's been such a rich experience for me personally. I hope it has been for you. If you are here for the first time this morning, well, you're in luck because we're going to give kind of a survey. You're going to get the whole thing all at one time this morning. But this letter that Peter wrote, this favored apostle of Jesus, has been such an encouragement to me and I trust to those of you who have been here as well. Letters are supposed to do that. I don't know if you've thought about that or not. Some of you, maybe, have received love letters at some point in your life. Maybe you have a drawer full or a shoebox full down in the basement somewhere. One of the things that we did, I don't know why we did it, but at Christmas time we decided we instead of, well, not instead of, but in addition to giving presents, we would write letters to one another. And so the best thing I receive at Christmas time is a letter from Marcia. And I enjoy that at Christmas, but I don't have a very good filing system. I have some in a file, but I have some in this drawer and some in that drawer and some wherever that I bump into now and then, which is sort of the whole point, to bump into it now and then and be reminded of what's in there. And I hope that that this letter from Peter will do that for you later on, that you'll bump into it and you'll be reminded of all of the good news that is yours because of the Gospel that Peter wrote about in his letter. And so, this morning we're going to look at the the last part of the book, the conclusion. And I'm hoping that in doing that, we can sort of draw some strings through the whole book that will remind us and encourage us of what has been there in this letter from Peter. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. By Silvanus... Faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. And there you have it. The conclusion of the letter that Peter wrote to the churches who were scattered in Asia Minor. And he tells us quite a bit about this letter. He tells us, first of all, that the mail service for this letter had a name. His name was Silvanus. That's how letters travel. They didn't have the UPS USPS, then, they didn't have the Pony Express. They had people who would carry messages from one person to another. And the news couldn't travel any faster than a person could carry it. That's very unusual to us. We have how many news services do you have on your phone? You've already seen this morning from all around the world. There, news could only travel as fast as one person. Happened to be, in this case, Sylvanus, who was a friend of the Apostle Paul and a missionary companion of him in some of his travels. He had an alias. He went by Silas sometimes. And then 
he now was connected to Peter. And Peter wrote this letter and handed it to the courier who was named was Silvanus and he carried it to these other churches. And I suspect that he did there what, what those Christmas letters do for me. He took a letter to Bithynia and read it probably and they wrote their own copy. They probably copied it and kept a copy on file so they could bump into it and read it every now and then. And then he went to Cappadocia and did the same thing. And then he went to Phrygia and went everywhere that the letter was addressed to. And they probably all did the same sorts of things. So that each church then would have a letter from Peter in their possession that they would use to remind themselves of this Gospel. Sylvanus was a faithful brother. And uh, Peter then says... I have written briefly to you. I love that, right? Because we've been we've been reading and studying this book for uh, I don't know six months or so, and you're wondering how in the world can you study a brief letter for six months? Well, that's sort of the pastoral job is to make things go long, right? And so that's why. But uh, he says I've written briefly to you, and this brief letter is intended for us to be reminded of this living hope that has been granted to us by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus. And so my hope is to to, summarize or to show you kind of the high points from this brief letter through the conclusion. And so after he essentially says, yes, uh, sent us by Silvanus, and it was brief, he says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He said this letter contains good news. Good news about what God has done. Good news that God is giving to you what you can't earn for yourself. It's grace. And he's saying this good news is the true grace of God. Now I want you to think about that because... it, it. the, the verbs here give us an indication of what you're supposed to do with good news. See, some of you may have come to church this morning expecting good advice. So the pastor stands up and he tells you, you should do this, this, and this. Here are three steps to a happy marriage or four steps to conquering your anger. And here's my advice. And when I give you advice, it's not encouragement and declaring. It's rather advising and cajoling. But here he says, I'm encouraging or exhorting. That's the same word. Encouraging and declaring. Really, that's what you do with news. You declare it. Okay? Especially when it only travels as fast as one person can carry it. They carry it and then they tell it. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's giving the news that God is a God of grace. In fact, in the previous verse, he's called a God of all grace. And so, he wants you to know that this letter, this Christian gospel that he writes about, is a gospel of grace. In fact, this again is one of those things that traces through the whole book. It starts with grace. He's written this according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling by His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied. To you. So the start of the very letter is 
I want you to know this letter is a letter about the grace of God. The conclusion says this letter is a letter about the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. And so he tells us then throughout the letter what you're to do with grace. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace. That's what you do with grace. I'm just going to say. That's what you do with grace. You hope in it. You set your hope fully on grace. Which helps you determine if you're believing in grace or not. Because if you're not believing in grace, it's going to be something like this. You're going to have some kind of negotiation with God. So God, I'm going to be good today in hope that You're going to bless me. And we're going to have some kind of contractual relationship here where I'll behave and You'll make my life good. And so, if we do that, then we're on good terms. That's how a lot of people approach a relationship with God. But that's, that's not grace. That's law. That's works. To say that I'm somehow going to behave so God blesses me is the wrong way to approach God. Because if you're having, if you, that's the way that you approach it, there's going to be a time, I'm just going to say, when you drop the ball. When your end of the deal doesn't get carried out, and then you're in trouble. So instead, he says, set your hope fully on grace. So that my hope is completely on the grace that comes to me from God. I'm not hoping in myself at all. I'm not trying to do maybe 20% of it and God do 80% of it and we hope that that works out good. I got 0%. My hope is completely on God. And when your hope is completely on God, you are hoping fully in the grace. This is the true grace of God. That's how you stand firm in it. It's a complete hope in someone else instead of a partial hope in yourself. Now, that's much easier said than done because a lot of us, a lot of us would like to hold back part of it. And so that there's this sense of satisfaction that I'm a pretty good person. Well, you might be a pretty good person, but that's not a good enough person to get you what you need from God. you, You must fully hope in the grace that comes from God. That's how you stand in it. Then he goes on in 1 Peter 4, to, he brings up the grace again, and he says, this time, this time what I want you to do with this grace is I want you to be a conduit of the grace. I don't want you to be this cul-de-sac that receives grace and has it just sit there for you. I want you to receive it in a way that you pass it along to other people. Or let me say it a different way. What God wants to do in order to give grace to me is He wants to give it to you and have you pass it along to me. He wants to give me grace and have me pass it along to you. And that's the normal way that we experience the grace of God. Sometimes we'll experience it without another person involved, but the normal way is when God has you, He, he gives you grace and has you stu- 
you steward it for the sake of someone else. And so he tells us, as each of you has received a grace gift, literally, use it to serve one another as a good steward. Someone's taking care of grace that's given to them. And then this is what it looks like. So whoever speaks, speak his very oracles or words of God. The one who serves, serve with the strength that God supplies. Because your service to one another is grace service. You serve because of grace. You serve so that someone else receives grace. You don't serve because I like to serve. I like to do my thing. It's not that I like to do my thing. It's that I, I want you to have grace because God's given me more than, I have, more than I need. And so I'm stewarding that and giving it away. And that's what you're to do uh, for me as well. And the outcome of that is in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God aims to distribute grace from one person to another. And in so doing, everyone recognizes that God Himself is a giver of these good things and He receives glory. That's the way that grace works from God's perspective. And so His intent is that we will fully hope in God, and fully hoping in God, we will pass along the grace to one another. <clears throat> he says, stand firm in that grace. Stand firm in that grace. Again, if you're thinking that part of it's you and part of it's God, it's going to be hard to stand firm because that part that you're standing on, if you're like me, is uh, kind of uh, crumbly and kind of weak. And it doesn't hold up. What you'll find when you stand firm is in fact that the grace of God holds up. That the grace of God is good enough for that and you can fully hope in it. We, we've seen this before. Just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, he talked about the uh, the devil being a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. And then he said, resist him firm in your faith. And so earlier he had said, be firm in faith. And here he says, be firm in grace. Which is exactly the relationship of the two things. Because what you do with grace is you believe it. That's what it means to set your hope fully. You believe in the grace that God gives you. So you are firm in faith because you are firmly trusting in grace. And grace and faith go together. That's why you have that wonderful passage in Ephesians that says, by grace you're saved through faith. Those two things always go together. And so you resist Him firm in your faith. And then he goes on there and says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. So again, notice the relationship of grace to this establishment and this stability. This God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself, God Himself will take this upon Himself to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You want to be confident? You want to be secure? You want to be free from anxiety? 
then stand firm in this grace because this God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. This is about as strong as you could possibly say God will help you be secure. And that's what He will do. And so He can confidently say, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then... He goes on to say, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. She sends you greetings. This is sort of a, this is a kind of interesting thing because you have to ask, who is she at Babylon? Because this is written shortly after the time of Christ and you need to know there was no Babylon. Babylon had been destroyed already. And even if there was a Babylon, Peter wasn't there. So why would he write and say, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings? Well, this is... (laughs) You could think of this as spy language, I suppose. Like a code name. And what Peter's doing is he is writing in code. And if you think about it, somebody reminded me in between services that this happens, this happens with the pilots all the time. Uh, we have missionaries in Southeast Asia. We can't even say the country. And you can't, there's a lot of words you can't use when you write them. You have to write code words. And the letters sound very strange because of the code words. But nonetheless, that's, that's what Peter's doing here. Because when he says, she who is at Babylon, he is summoning this history of Israel where they were God's people and king after king after king of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and God brought judgment through Babylon, through the Babylonians. And He took them into captivity away from the Promised Land, away from uh Jerusalem away from the presence of God and they were now exiles in a land that was not their own. The world was not working like it worked when they were in Jerusalem. And so he imports all of that heartache and all of that uh, disappointment and pain and feeling of separation by saying, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. He's importing the idea that the people of God are um, exiles. See, that's what Babylon stands for here. And that's really throughout the book too. This has been one of the most helpful themes for me personally, thinking through what's a church supposed to be like in this world. And it's that that we don't belong. We are not here in Jerusalem where we run the show. We are exiles and it's someone else's show. And we are without power or place. And he starts the letter this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect Exiles of the dispersion. You don't have a seat at the table. You don't get to call the shots. You are the people of God. You are, 
You are citizens of a kingdom that's not this kingdom. So by definition, if this isn't your home kingdom, you're in exile. And see, Peter's summoning that when he says, she who is at Babylon writes you, gives you greetings. The exiles. And he picks up this theme throughout. In chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, there needs to be some boundaries on the way that you behave in this world because those things will destroy you because you're not from around here. You don't belong in the same way that the people around you belong. He says, if you call on God as Father who judges impartially each according to His deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with the fear of God. So we don't fear the king. We don't fear the government. We don't fear changes in the government. We fear the true king. We fear God and God alone. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You don't belong here. This is not your home. He goes on to say, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And I love this because this gives us a sense of what happened that made people exiles. They, there is a generational issue here. You were part of the establishment at one time. Your forefathers lived in this world as citizens. And, instead, you somehow were intercepted. You somehow were rescued. Or, let me just use Peter's words for it, right? You were born again into a living hope. And what happened to you? You were ransomed from that feudal lifestyle that happened here with these other citizens. You were rescued from that. And so now, you, you have a different life. That empty life is gone and now you have a new life. Because you've been purchased not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what God has done has been to rescue you from this old way of life where... Caesar is your only king. For now you have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, and the king of kings is now your king. And you're in exile as you interact with this other kingdom around you. So it gives us that, he gives us that uh, identity that toward those on the outside, we are exiles and strangers toward institutions. We submit to them, but they're not our institutions. There's another piece of this identity, and that is toward God. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. What God has done in distancing you from this kingdom He has brought you into another kingdom. So now you are a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and you belong to Him. Your identity now is first and foremost someone and some bodies who belong to God. 
Secondarily, your identity are, is people who don't belong to those on the outside. Which is just fine with me. I'm happy to make that trade. That is a great trade. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you would not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You have a new identity as And isn't that interesting? Your identity as a mercy recipient. Who are you? I'm I'm somebody who's received mercy. That's how I identify myself. What an amazing identity. Whereas now, I'm on the outside when I'm in the world. I'm on the inside. Couldn't be more inside with respect to God. Because He has shown me His mercy. And so... We have this dual identity highlighted by codename Babylon. This codename that he's writing. And really, I think codename Babylon is for Rome. He's writing from Rome, the center of power in the world, just like Babylon was when they were in exile. Now he's in Rome and he's just letting us know, you know, in code, I'm at the seat of power here. And. She who is in Babylon, who is she? She is most likely the church at Rome. And so, here's Peter with this little church. And they're all sending their greetings. And she is likewise chosen. See, he could have written this without saying that. He could have said, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. But instead, he says, she was in Babylon who is likewise chosen. She is chosen like you are chosen. God chose her like He chose you. And I think He wants us to pause and say, what does it mean for God to choose me? What does it mean for God to say, I pick you? See, some of you... Some of you know the opposite of what that means. I pick you, don't you? I mean, you grew up on the playground and you watched the other kids get picked. You know the feeling of being left behind. But instead, what we have here is that God is saying, she who is in Babylon greets you. She who is likewise chosen. God has chosen His church. And you see, it's not that we're the only church. No, He chooses the church we prayed for this morning. The Lutherans down the street who are believing this same Gospel are likewise chosen. And what does it mean? I just want to stop and say, what does it mean to be chosen? Here's, here's what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. That's what he's saying. Is that God chose you. God went after you. You, didn't, you. you may have thought you picked first. But God went after you. And he, he says this throughout the book. According to the foreknowledge of God. So, you are in because God wanted you in. And because He reached out ahead of time to pull you in. You are a chosen race. You're not just, you're not just a race. You are a race that God has chosen. And so God, God places His choice on you. 
He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This isn't just calling to you while you're in the darkness. He is calling, we call this in, in theology, the word is effectual call. It is a call that affects the rescue. And He is calling to pull you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so you are called and drug out of darkness. He, is, he has, in the words of Paul, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. He has taken you from here to here. And He has done that. That's all He's saying. It is the initiative of God here that Peter intends to highlight so that you feel loved by Him. Think about it. You don't feel loved when you're ignored by someone, do you? You feel loved when someone takes initiative toward you. And when they take initiative toward you, that's how they express love. I, I, had, a, I had a pastor this week just uh, sent me an email and said, hey, I'd like to have a pastoral conversation with you. And my first thought was, oh dear, what's, you know, what's happened in his church that he needs to talk about? And so I, I wanted to make as quick an uh, appointment as I could. So we had lunch and uh, he asked me how I was. You know, told him my story and then I said, how are you? He said, I don't want to talk about myself. I just wanted to invite you out to dinner to out to lunch to let you know that I'm praying for you, that I support you, that I'm thankful for you. And I just thought, who does this kind of thing? And it was just the most loving thing because he took the initiative and he noticed the need and he reached out to meet it. And that's exactly what this is saying that God did. That pastor called me and here he's saying, God called you. And it's a beautiful thing that just says God loves you very, very much. And that's what you're supposed to get when you find the book of First Peter in your door. And you pull it out and you read a little bit of it. Then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this is very simply an extension of what he said throughout the whole book. You need to have an appropriate way of greeting one another that says, I love you, you're special to me. Okay, let me, let me just suggest how this looks. Okay? There are uh, a few people here who are my grandchildren. Okay? Now, my favorite thing at church is to visit with the children. But there are some children that are my grandchildren. And they get a different greeting from me. And it's not just a bunch of smooches. Most of the time, most of the time I'm picking them up and throwing them there. Okay, I don't do that for most of you. <laughs> but I'll do that for my grandkids, right? But, and all it is is a way of, of saying, you are important to me. Right? Now, I, I want to be appropriate and I don't want to greet all the children. And all the children are important. But there are some children, right, that are more important. That I have a different... A, essentially a further step of love toward. That's what he's talking about here. Is that there is, there are people in your life, namely your church, that need a different level of affection. 
where you need to say, this person part of my church, this person isn't. This person is the person that I'm going to express my love and affection toward. And it can be any number of ways that you express that. But all it is is find some way to say, I'm doing what Peter says to do in the rest of the book. Okay? He says here, you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. The, the reason you obeyed the truth, namely had faith in the Gospel, was so that you would have brothers and sisters to love. So, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Do it sincerely. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, fear God. Honor everyone, even the emperor. But there is a special category of the brotherhood, of the church of Jesus Christ, that says, these are the people I love. These are my people. Love the brotherhood. He says this everywhere. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Wouldn't that be great if everyone was like that? Above all, item number one, most important thing, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. So, he's essentially saying find ways to express Love to one another. Okay, that's all he's been saying throughout the whole book. And he closes with that because that's, that's the cultural expression that he talks, talks about at the end of the book. The cultural greeting. And so find a way to express love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And so the thing about loving people is they will bother you. They will aggravate you. They will hurt you. And what do you do? You love them and forgive them because that love covers a multitude of sins. You don't want to be the person who drinks the poison and hopes somebody else will die. You love them and you cover a multitude of sins. Well, he gets then to the final phrase of the letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. I suspect, I suspect that that's probably why you're here this morning. That you're longing for, hoping for the deepest level, peace for your soul. Peace in the midst of the stress that you have the rest of the week. Peace in the midst of the conflict of the people who are close to you. Peace in the midst of the news that you watch on TV. And so his final greeting is peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. The peace that you long for, I just want to say again, only comes in Christ. It doesn't come through any other striving. It doesn't come through any other means. It comes in Christ. Which is, again, something he's talked about throughout the whole book, right? This quotation from the Old Testament in chapter 3 just says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. That's what I said. All of us want this. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Which very simply, when you're hurt by somebody, you can walk toward that rather than isolate yourself from it. You don't have to walk into it angry, but you can walk into it and just simply say, help me understand. Help me understand what it was that maybe I misunderstood or that I that hurt me. And you gently walk toward it, seek peace and pursue it. <clears throat> and so we're after peace. And then here we get back to where we started, right? The very beginning of the letter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We're back where we began. The whole point of the letter is to highlight the grace that comes to you in Christ so that you might experience peace. And that is the Gospel that he's talked about in First Peter. And I, I just want to remind you here in closing of what we chose kind of as a theme for First Peter, this living hope. It is a hope that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a hope that is ours because God has taken initiative to love us and to make sure that we do in fact believe it. It is a living hope that is, yes, a hope for one day when God will make all things right, but it's living because it makes a difference in the way I treat other people today. It's living because it makes a difference in the way that I endure suffering today. It's a living hope because it makes a difference in the way that I navigate my relationships today. This living hope that we have because of Jesus reminds us that the dawn will always replace the darkness. This living hope that we have because of the blood of Jesus and His resurrection reminds us that we have a Savior that will always salvage your suffering. This living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of God's intent to include you in its benefits. This living hope assures us that humility always ends in exaltation. And that is the message of this letter. And that is what I hope that you'll find when you pull it out of your door and when you rediscover it time and time again that God will make wrong things right. That He does have a future and a hope for His people who are exiles in this world but are His treasured possession. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's my prayer that every person here is included in this promise. That every person here has faith to trust in Your grace. And then, Father, initially, yes, that they might become Your child and have You as their Father. But, Father, I, my prayer is that they would have faith to trust in Your grace moment by moment and day by day so that today and tomorrow and the next day they might still stand firm in that grace. Would you be pleased? Would you be pleased to um, 
help us and to mend us and to comfort us and to strengthen and establish and make us firm. And we'll give You the glory for Your grace. Amen.